podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 12th of October. Hope you're all well. We're having nice weather here. And I'm a little unnerved by it. Definitely means something bad is coming. Right, folks. If I get interrupted in this podcast by the sound of a shrieking lunatic, it is just Molly. The neighbor... Uh, up the road, got a new dog who has taken to wandering into our garden. Uh, Molly finds this to be a great affront to her dominance over the domain. And she starts howling like a lunatic while looking out the window, which will set off Sammy and Toby. Um, 
So, yeah. So apologies in advance if that happens. It has been going on uh, pretty much nonstop all day. Most of, well, most of the last couple of weeks, actually. So it's been great. It's been great. Um, Anyway, we are going to start today by discussing the retirement of Eden Hazard. Hazard announced his retirement at the age of 32. And there's been a lot of discourse about it. So I thought we'd, we'd dive in. Now, let's start with why Eden Hazard has decided to retire. Now, he, he said it's in part because of injuries. But let's be really honest here. The other reason is that nobody wanted to sign it. No top club had any interest in signing Eden Hazard. Now, maybe he could have gone to Saudi Arabia and played there and made a decent sum of money. But he obviously didn't want to do that. If he had wanted to, I assume he would be there. But no Premier League club was reaching out to Eden Hazard. No La Liga club. No Serie A club, no Bundesliga club. They weren't reaching out to Eden Hazard and he wasn't going to go and play for a lesser club in those leagues for less money. He would still view himself as a top level footballer. And given, you know, what he accomplished in his career, I do think that's pretty fair. However, given what went on at Real Madrid, I'm not sure how he could expect any club to want to pay him anything resembling decent money. Now, his brother Thorgan is at Anderlecht, and potentially he could have gone there. There was talk that he might go back to Anderlecht, or not go back to Anderlecht because he never played for them, but go to Anderlecht. Um, Thorgan made the decision in the summer, having realised that his career at the elite level was over, to go to Anderlecht play in his native land and, you know, enjoy the last couple of years of his career. There was talk Eden could do it. He's obviously made the decision he didn't want to do it. And that's fine. So Eden Hazard became known to everybody when he was at Lille. He had been through a couple of academies, landed with Lille, and then broke into the first team two years later. And in his time there, he did establish himself as the most exciting young European player that was coming through. He was incredibly fun to watch at Lille, playing either wing or off the striker. For a time, he was pretty unstoppable. His dribbling ability, his vision, his passing ability his ability to to cut back crosses on either foot were outrageous. There was was real promise in Eden Hazard that this might be the European Messi was how he was being framed. Now, that was always unfair because at that point, Messi, you know, 2010-11 we're talking about here, his last two seasons, 10, 11, 12, and 11, 12, his last two seasons with Lille, Messi is already the best player in the world and has been for a couple of seasons by this point. So it was an unfair expectation to place on a young Eden Hazard. 
But if you look at his time at Lille, so the 07-08 season he makes his debut, he only plays four times. And it's literally just, let's try and get this kid into the mix and let's see what we have here. He's only 17 years of age. There's no expectation on him yet. His first full season is 08-09. And he becomes a regular for them. He's not eased in. He's straight into the mix. And he started to show straight away what he was capable of. And there was a lot of clubs that started to really take notice of Eden Hazard in this season. He plays just over 1,700 minutes, six goals and four assists, and he shows versatility. Plays both wings, plays as a 10, plays off the striker. And he looks best in that right-wing role, which is unusual in, in the modern game for a right-footed player to look better in that right-wing role. But with his dribbling ability and that explosive burst he had over the first 10 to 15 yards, he would pick the ball up wide on the touchline, drive down that touchline, chop back inside, and then turn again to go in between the left-back who was now trailing him and the left-side centre-back who was stepping out to try and stop him. And with that explosive burst, he would get to that gap. And all of a sudden now, he'd worked his way into space, which would enable him to get shots away, to get crosses in, to cut back. And he really did look like this is this is the start of something. 09-10, he ramps up the minutes and he's now an undeniable starter in the Lille team. Plays 3,700 minutes, scores seven goals in the, sorry, scores scores 10 goals in all competitions, including uh, the French League Cup and the Europa League qualifiers, and has 13 assists. So immediately, in his first full season as an every game starter, he's hugely productive. And again, he's showing versatility. Now, he does predominantly play on the left wing in this season. And he starts to expand his ability to use his left foot. And we see him driving left, cutting the ball back. We see him moving in, moving back out. And starting to get that level where teams are starting to game plan for him. And late in that season, you started to see teams doubling up at right-back, where the right-sided midfielder, be it from a three or a four, was playing as an auxiliary, auxiliary right-back so that when Hazard would pick the ball up, the, the actual right-back would try and stop him down the line and the midfielder dropping in would try and stop him from coming in field onto his favourite right foot. And this is the time when the top clubs start to make offers. And to their credit, Lille... Don't entertain any offer. He continued to ramp up the 11, the 10 11 season. He plays 4,100 minutes, 12 goals, 14 assists, again, playing in a variety of positions. Again, adding new strings to his bow. His passing started to develop a lot more. 
his ability to break the lines and just find that slide rule pass as he cut in onto his right foot to find that slide rule pass to a striker moving from the central area into that left-hand channel behind the centre-back. Hazard getting that reverse pass started to become a real problem for teams to try and defend. Now, in 11-12, he explodes. And in this season, he is on a completely different level. Now, 10-11, it's worth pointing out, Lille won the double. And he was very, very good. But it's the next season where he really explodes. And it's basically, there's no denying anymore that Eden Hazard is the brightest young player in Europe. And Eden Hazard is set for a massive move. Now, while he's doing this in Europe, obviously Neymar is starting to really establish himself as a potential superstar in Brazil with Santos putting on incredible performances, putting on a show. The thing I loved about Neymar at Santos and Hazard at Lille is it seemed like they had grasped that when people were paying their money in, they were coming to watch the game, but they were also coming to watch these uber-talented young players put on a show. And Hazard's last season at Lille, in my opinion, remains the best season that he has had in his career. 4,200 minutes across 49 appearances. Again, a variety of positions, left wing, right wing, attacking midfield, second striker. From attacking midfield in eight games that year, he got seven goals, seven assists. In total, he got 22 goals and 22 assists. And he was outrageous. You're talking eights and nines as standard and 10 out of 10 a lot of weeks, like legitimate 10 out of 10 performances. Nobody could cope with him. And it wasn't patchy. If you look at the first 10 games of that season, he scores four goals. He has six assists. Across the next 10 games, it's three goals, one assist. Across the next 10 games, it's outrageous. It's seven goals and six assists. And in the last eight games, he's six goals and five assists. So consistently through the season, the season, he's putting up numbers. He's putting on performances. He's winning matches almost single-handedly for Leo. And he's an absolute nightmare to try and defend. And at this point, the summer 2013, it looks set to be an absolute bidding war to secure Eden Hazard. Summer 2012, sorry. Every club is interested. Every club is interested. All the top Premier League clubs from Liverpool to United to City to Arsenal are keyed in. Real and Barca are interested. PSG want him. Bayern want him. And then he tweets out, late one evening, I will be joining the champions of Europe. 
And Chelsea had just won the European Cup, beating Bayern Munich. So Chelsea secured Eden Hazard for £32 million. A lot at the time, but still felt low for what they were getting, for who they were getting. He was 21 years of age. He'd already had one incredible season and one outstanding season with Lille, won a league title, won a cup. He'd had some games in the Champions League and it just felt like the sky was the limit for this kid. So he goes to Chelsea and immediately he looks at home in the Premier League. The first season, while it's a drop-off from his incredible campaign with Lille, he is still so exciting. He plays 62 games across all competitions, over 4,500 minutes, 13 goals, 24 assists, 9 and 14 in 34 Premier League games. So immediately he's at home and he's comfortable in the Premier League. And he has a very good season. 13 14 then. He develops into more of a goal scorer than a creator as he had been the year before. Now, at Lille, he'd shown he could do both. And there's a misconception, and I want to talk about it when we get towards the end, about him. But bear with me for now. 49 games, nearly 4,000 minutes, 17 goals, 10 assists. At Chelsea, he's almost exclusively playing left wing. They're not making the most of him. Now, part of that is this 13-14 season, Mourinho has come back to the club. And Mourinho, as we know, not the most flexible tactically, but Hazard is impressive. 14 goals and 9 assists in 35 Premier League games. 14-15 then, obviously, he would win the league with Chelsea. 14 goals and 10 assists in 38 Premier League games. Plays 52 in all competitions. 19 goals, 13 assists. You can make a strong case that this is his best all-round season at Chelsea when you factor in the amount of chances the teammates spurned. Because he was creating chances at an outrageous rate in that year. He was unplayable. That Mourinho title-winning team the second time around, has sort of been forgotten to history. But if you consider City had won the league the year before and looked to be going in the right direction. Arsenal had Ozil and Sanchez and were very excited about what the future might hold. Liverpool had finished second the year before. And there was a belief going into the season that Liverpool could challenge again. Now, that was a belief held by foolish people because they'd sold Suarez, who was single-handedly responsible for what had happened the year before, and they'd replaced him with Dross. But still, United had brought in Louis van Gaal. Fresh off the 2014 World Cup, it was felt like Louis van Gaal could be the guy. After the failed Moyes experiment and the give it Giggsy till the end of the year shenanigans, Van Gaal was expected to get United right back into contention. 
And I think part of the reason that that Chelsea team is forgotten about is because it's probably... Like Mourinho's first two titles, that, that team was just was a machine. The Conte title, because it was his first season, because they'd finished mid-table the year before because of Jose shenanigans and obviously some bad dressing room chemistry. Because of the fact that, you know, Pep was in the league and Klopp was in the league, so for Conte to win the title ahead of those two was seen as a an amazing achievement, which obviously it was. But this Chelsea team, I think, is better than the Ancelotti teams that won the double. I'd nearly go as far to say as it's a better team than... Actually, I would go as far to say it's a better team than won the European Cup for them. Either time. This Chelsea team is is overlooked. You had an outrageously good young goalkeeper in Thibaut Courtois. And Petr Cech as the backup. Now, Petr Cech would move to Arsenal and show himself to still be one of the better keepers in the league after this season. So he is, without question, the best backup goalkeeper anyone has had. That's the best goalkeeping situation any Premier League team has ever had. Thibaut Courtois and Petr Cech. You just can't get better than that. You had, in the fullback positions, Branislav Ivanovic in his prime at right-back, one of the best right-backs the Premier League has ever seen, and Cesar Azpilicueta at left-back, one of the best left-backs the league has seen, arguably the second-best all-round fullback, given his versatility of ability to play right back or left back. Like only Dennis Irwin will rank above him in that regard. He was good going forward. He was a lockdown 1v1 defender. And as he proved under Conte, he could play in that back three. Cesar Aspilicueta at this point is probably the best pure defender in the league because you can use him anywhere. You can have him man mark somebody. You can have him be a help, help defender. That's an incredible fullback pairing. You've got late career John Terry, who at that point was still good. And Gary Cahill next to him, who had a career year. It's a strong defence, and it's a Mourinho defence, which means they're not being asked to defend big spaces. So when you put Ivanovic at right back and Aspilicueta at left back, they're going to tuck in and protect those two centre-backs. Now, sat in front of them, you had Nemanja Matic, who's the most underrated holding midfielder the league has seen other than Michael Carrick. You've got Sesk in midfield, who was tremendous that year. You've got Oscar as a starter. He was really good that year, largely in the number 10 position. Ramirez in rotation. John Obi Mikel had a career year, even though he didn't start a lot. He played 18 games and he was very, very good for them that year. It's a strong midfield group. It's a very, very strong midfield group. Then Hazard would play one wing. Diego Costa would be up front. And William was on the other, the other wing. So everywhere you're looking, there's a good player. 
there's no weak point in that team. You've got the creativity of Sesk, Oscar, Hazard, and William. The goal threat of Hazard and Diego Costa. The work rate of Diego Costa. Oscar, who's, because of the decision he made to go and play in China in <clears throat> as he was approaching the prime of his career, which to this day, it's still, to me, such a shame. Because he was a player I loved watching. He was so good on the ball, so clever, but yet worked incredibly hard. Like off the ball, he was an absolute machine. And he was really, really good in that title winning season. But without question, despite everyone else in their various positions being good to great, Eden Hazard was the standout player. And that year, he was awarded Football Writers Player of the Year, Premier League Player of the Season, PFA Player of the Year, and Fans Player of the Year. He was genuinely outstanding in that season. But not as good as he'd been in that final season at Lille, in my opinion. We move on. 15-16 is a nightmare season for him. This is the season he has the spectacular falling out with Mourinho. There's rumours of a lot of discontent behind the scenes, not just with Hazard, but with certain other players, including Thibaut Courtois. He plays 43 games. He scores six goals, gets eight assists. For a normal player, they're not bad numbers. For him, they're awful. Four goals and four assists in the league. The four assists came... Sorry, three of the assists came very early. He didn't score in the league until April. He went an entire calendar year, factoring in when his goal, last goal had been the previous season. He went an entire calendar year without scoring in the Premier League. He got neither a goal nor an assist in the months of October, November, December, January, or February. He then got one assist in March before he started to score goals at the very end of April. It was a disastrous year. There's no way around it. It's one of the worst years we've seen from a truly great player. And at that point, after 14-15, you couldn't deny that Eden Hazard had become a great player. He put together four excellent seasons in a row the last two at Lille, the first two at Chelsea, two of which were genuinely outstanding. In 16-17, this is the season that Antonio Conte arrives. He plays 43 games, about 3,400 minutes, 17 goals and seven assists. In the Conte system, he was required to be much more of a goal scorer. And he started the season in great form. It tailed off. He wasn't as good as he had been in previous years. But he plays a vital role as Chelsea win the league. Then comes 17-18, the second year of Conte. 
And the team was not as good. The team did not play as well. But he put up 17 goals and 13 assists in 52 games and 3,800 minutes. He played a lot through the middle that season. Whether it was as the nine, he played as a false nine quite a bit. Whether it was off the striker, in that case it was Morata. I'm almost certain. It was Morata. Because they wanted to bring in Drogba. Conte wanted Drogba and ended up with Morata. And funnily enough, Morata was what United needed. uh, Sorry, they wanted to bring in Lukaku. Lukaku was what Conte needed at Chelsea. Morata was what United had needed at that time. And they got the wrong players. He played a lot as an attacking midfielder as well in the 4-2-3-1 when Conte went that direction. Again, he was good, but he wasn't great that year. And then we have 18-19, which numbers-wise is best season at Chelsea. 52 games, 3,900 minutes, 21 goals, 17 assists, 16 and 15 in the Premier League. He was tremendous that year. It was probably the third best season of his career. After the last season at Lille and the first title winning season at Chelsea, this is his third best season. And then he's had two other very good years, two good years. No, sorry, two other very good years and three good years. And then one dreadful year in between. So at this point, he's 29 years of age. Sorry, 28 years of age. And a lot of people are wondering, is he going to stay at Chelsea? Is there a move here? What's the play with Eden Hazard? What is he going to do next in his career? And the answer was he was going to leave. Real Madrid came in. He had 12 months left in his contract. Chelsea may have had an option to extend. I don't know. But Real paid a fee that could have risen to 150 million euro for him. Now, I think it was like 100 million guaranteed plus significant add-ons. He got a huge wage. And off to Real he went. And there was incredible excitement because Cristiano was gone. Hazard and Bale was what they had hoped would drive them forward from here. Benzema was expected to take on more of the goal-scoring burden, which obviously he did. And with Hazard and Bale feeding him and offering goals themselves... There was a thought that this is going to be a more balanced front line than when Benzema had to play second fiddle to Cristiano. Because despite the fact that Hazard has never really been one for a whole lot of tracking back, he did more of it than Cristiano did. He was much more of a team player than Cristiano was. And the feeling was there's going to be more balance between these three because they're all on a similar level. Bale what we knew he could do, Benzema, what he'd shown himself capable to be, and Eden Hazard, especially considering Hazard was coming off a very, very good campaign. But Real was nothing short of a disaster for him. So the first season, he plays 22 games, 
1,600 minutes, a little under. One goal and seven assists. But he has injuries. He has injuries. He had the hamstring issue when he arrived. And then he had the ankle injury, which turned out to be a crack in his foot. And he missed a number of months. And then when he came back, he had some more issues that were related to the same injury. He never got going. But then he got a full preseason under himself. And the expectation was he's going to be fine. Except that on the eve of the season, he gets injured again. And in year two at Real, he plays 21 games, less than 900 minutes, scores four goals, gets one assist. In 21-22, he comes into the season injury-free, confident, talking a big game, plays 23 games, 900 minutes, one goal and two assists. And one of those assists was in the first game of the year. Now, he did have injuries that season as well. But most of his injury issues came in the second half of the season. And he had been dreadful for the first half of the season, to the point where he couldn't command a regular place in the team. Last season, then, he played 10 games, less than 400 minutes, one goal, two assists. One assist in La Liga, a goal and an assist against Celtic in the opening Champions League group stage match. Couldn't get in the team, was sitting on the bench, not getting minutes. Carlo wouldn't consider bringing him on unless it was desperation mode or or they were playing someone particularly poor. Like that season in the league, he played against Almeria, who finished 15th, Celta Vigo, who finished 16th, Mallorca, who finished 13th, Valladolid, who finished 16th, no, sorry, 17th, uh, Cadiz and Hitafe. All clubs in the bottom half of the league. He did not play a single minute against any club in the top half of the league. Not one single minute. And he was on the bench for all bar one, two, three, four, five. He missed five match day squads. Five match day squads. So he was available for 33 match day squads. And he only played in six games in the league. Two starts. One against Mallorca, one against Atafe. Did nothing in either game. One assist in the league against Valladolid, who Real beat 6-0. And he came on as a sub in that. He didn't play after the third round of the Copa del Rey. He played against a lower league team in Casareno. He did not play against Villarreal. He was on the bench. He missed the Atleti game. He was on the bench for the two Barcelona games and the Osasuna final and didn't get off the bench. Didn't get off the bench for either game in the Supercopa. And in the Champions League, he started against Celtic, was on the bench for the next two games, started against Shakhtar, 
came off the bench against Leipzig, was injured for the Celtic game, and was on the bench for both semi both last 16 quarterfinal and semi-final games and never got a minute. Which will tell you what Carlo thought of him. And off that season, which is an all-time shocker, and when you factor in the four seasons spent at Real and that abysmal 15-16 season, that is five, five genuinely appalling seasons in his career. And he goes out on a real loan of at international level, 126 caps, 33 goals. But went missing in major tournaments. Three goals at major tournaments. Plenty in qualifiers, plenty in friendlies, but only three goals in major tournaments. He scored against Hungary at Euro 2026. He scored the third goal in a 4-0 win. In the 2018 World Cup, he scored the opener against Tunisia and then the fourth goal in a 5-2 win. Sorry, so there's four goals in major competitions because he got two in that one and then he scored the second goal against England in a 2-0 win. Now, he's not alone in being part of that Belgian generation who didn't perform at major tournaments, but he was, him and KDB are the two standout players of that incredible era of Belgian talent. With Lukaku, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Vermeilen, Witzel, Dries Mertens, those two stand out. Those are meant to be the figureheads, the Thibaut Courtois as well, of course. And in fact, you could put Courtois in that, that group. Those three were undeniably world-class players. Lukaku was a world-class goal scorer. I don't know if I'd class him as a world-class player. Now, you, you might disagree, but I wouldn't. Vertonghen and Alderweireld were very, very good. I think I'd stop short of calling them world-class. I think Alderweireld, you could make a case for. He had probably two, maybe three seasons where he was world-class. So if you want to make that case, that's fine. I'd say Vertonghen was a slight notch below. Witzel would have been a notch below world-class at his very best. They never delivered. Like, they won nothing with all that talent in an era of weak international competition. Like, you can't tell me the German team that won the World Cup in 2014 had more talent than Belgium did. You can't tell me that the Portuguese team that won the Euros in 2016 had more talent than Belgium did. The same with the Italian team that won the Euros in 21 or the Argentinian team that won the World Cup this past year. The only team who's won a major tournament since Spain 
that had more talent than the Belgians was the French in 2018. And like even that French team, overall, you could say they've underachieved because they've won one of four tournaments where they've had by far the best squad. But Belgium, for me, have had the second best squad most of that time and accomplished nothing. Not even not even getting to a final. So, you know, they got third place in the 2018 World Cup. Whoop-de-doo. I refuse to be impressed by that because England got fourth place and England were dross. Belgium did so well to get to that point And yet, when they came up against real competition in France, a damn squib of a performance. You know, they beat Brazil. It was a fairly average Brazil team, I would say, in 2018. They've beaten Japan. In the group stage, they obviously overcome England, but Tunisia and Panama, am am I to be impressed by that? Then they beat England again in the third and fourth place playoff. That's when when Hazard uh, got his goal. You just can't be overly impressed by the international career of Eden Hazard. He won some medals. He won two league titles with Chelsea, an FA Cup, a League Cup, and two Europa Leagues. And he was... I would argue their best player for pretty much every one of those. Now, at Real, he won two league titles, a Copa del Rey, a Supercopa, a Champions League, and a UEFA Supercup. And he played little to no part in any of that success. Little to no part. Those are not medals that he earned. He just happened to be there. The Chelsea medals he earned. He was a fantastic player up until 2019. But you can't make an argument that Eden Hazard's legacy is overall putting him among the all-time greats. You just can't because there's too many really bad seasons. There's five And yet you can say, oh, he had some injuries and this and that. He didn't have injuries this past season. Didn't have many injuries the season before. It was only that first season at Real that he really had a lot of injuries. A one serious injury. The hairline crack in the foot. After that, a couple of minor bits here and there. But... What you need to look at, whereas at Lille, we saw the growth of him as a footballer. At Real, we saw the growth of him as a, fo- as, a, as a human being. And not in the good way. I'm not talking about mental growth or emotional growth. I'm talking about the growth of his arse. Eden Hazard didn't put the work in in the prime years of his career. He was 28 when he left Chelsea. He was in his prime. 
and his prime has been wasted. And those years at Real were just a shambles. That is one of, if not the worst transfer in history. It has to be. He contributed nothing. I think overall he has significantly underachieved. There are, for me, two two genuinely great seasons in his career. And the last of them was 2014-15. Now, you can argue the final season of Chelsea, and that's fine. I'll accept that. But that's one season since 2014-15 that he was genuinely great. But he wasn't the best player in the league that season. He wasn't even the best winger in the league that season. You could make a case he was the third best winger in the league that season after Raheem Sterling and Mo Salah. The best player in the league that year was Virgil van Dijk. And people talk about him as an all-time great. And I can understand Chelsea fans considering him an all-time Chelsea great. But what's his record like in the Champions League? Because at the end of the day, the Premier League contains a lot of bad teams in most seasons. The Champions League is really where the elite are supposed to be. That's where the best of the best are meant to meant to live. So let's look at his Champions League record. So the first time he plays in the competition is 11-12. With Lille, he plays six games, gets two assists. 12 13, he plays it with Chelsea, six games, three assists. Six games means group stage and gone. So, group stage exits the, the first two years he's in the competition. 13 14, nine games, just the two goals, no assists. 14 15, like I said, the best season of his Chelsea tenure, seven games. Three goals, three assists. The following season, eight games, no goals, one assist. Seventeen, eighteen. he actually does very well in the Champions League. Eight games, three goals, four assists. They don't play in the Champions League in 18 nineteen twenty with Real, six games, one assist. The following year, five games, one goal, no assists. The year they won it, 21-22, three games, 83 minutes total. Didn't contribute to them winning the competition. Then last season, three appearances, one goal, one assist, both of them in that game against Celtic. Like his Champions League record just doesn't add up. It just does not add up for the player he was meant to be. He falls short. That's where the best players make themselves stand out 
as the best players, and he never really did it. There's two seasons there that you could be impressed by. 14-15. He's in the group stage, got a draw, uh, um, an assist against Schalke, fairly average Schalke team. Two goals and an assist against Maribor in a 6-0 win. Uh, an assist away to Schalke. And then in the last 16, when they got knocked out, he got a goal in the second leg against PSG. So the PSG goal is the only impressive goal or assist he gets that year. Then seventeen eighteen, he gets an assist against Atleti, two goals at home against Roma. Yeah, at home against Roma. Uh, a goal and an assist against Quarabeg. Another assist against Atleti and then an assist against Barcelona. But then no shows the second leg as they get beaten 3-0. Like, even his better seasons, there's, there's no real... There's no single Eden Hazard Champions League moment. There just isn't. If you even look at what Chelsea fans are pulling out as like the standout Hazard moments, remember when he did this against Liverpool. It's like a heavily rotated Liverpool team in a League Cup game. You hear a lot of this, the streets don't forget nonsense. And yeah, Eden Hazard was a very fun player to watch. But he underachieved in his career. And the streets don't forget players. That's just another way of saying a player who hugely underachieved. It's always like Adel Tarapt or Hatim Ben Arfa. So what you're doing there, unwittingly, because Nera wits about you, is you're saying Eden Hazard underachieved in his career. He was fun to watch, but on the pitch, he didn't produce as much as he could have, as often as he could have. Like I said, for my money, his best season was that last year at Lille. And yes, he was very, very good for Chelsea. But he was only the best player in the league once. He was only a top three player in the league once. So, like, when people try and say, who are you taking in their prime, Salah or ha- or Hazard? I'm sorry. It's a very simple answer. It's Mohamed Salah. The guy who's got an all-timer resume in the Champions League. The guy who scored more goals just since he joined Liverpool than Eden Hazard did in his entire career. And then you get the retort of, well, Hazard never cared about scoring goals. That simply isn't true. That simply isn't true. Look at his career. He did care about scoring goals. If he didn't, he'd have a half dozen seasons of 20 20 assists or more. But he doesn't. He's got two. 
He's got two. And the last one of them was a decade ago. Eden Hazard was a great player for a period of time. And an extended period of time. From 2010 to 2019, which is nine years, nothing to be sniffed at. He was a very good to great player in all bar one season. So eight out of nine years, he was very good to great. But if we look at his career, starting with those last two years at Lille, all the way through his tenure at Chelsea and those years at Real, because let's remember, he's only 32. This is not an old guy. He's 32. He's six months older than Mo Salah, who's still tearing the league up. He's the same age as KDB, who's arguably the best player in the league when fit. He's younger than Virgil van Dijk. He's had five dreadful seasons. And when we want to talk about old-timers, I'm sorry. If you've got five genuinely terrible seasons on your resume and you have no Champions League resume of note, and the furthest your team got while you were an important player in the team was the, what, round of 16? Quarterfinals? Quarterfinals they got to one year. One year. Like, no. I I just... I. I can't have it, I'm afraid. Even his Europa League resume, even though he won it twice with Chelsea, he didn't put up the numbers. Chelsea didn't win the Europa League because he carried them. They had very good teams. Now, he might have been the best player. And I think it's fair to say he probably was the best player. But was he the best performer? In either campaign, no. The best performer in both league titles, I'll give him that, although Cesc might have an argument for the Conte year. But with no Champions League resume, with five awful years in his career, it's a very hard argument to to make. It really is that Eden Hazard is an all-timer. It really is. It's a near impossible argument to make. If you look at a 13-year span and someone has five dreadful seasons, they're an inconsistent player. It's what they are. Which is why he fits into a streets won't forget category more so than an all-time great category, which to me proves that he hugely, hugely failed to live up to the expectation which was that this kid was going to be a multi-time Ballon d'Or winner and a regular regular podium finisher in that Ballon d'Or one season as the best player in the Premier League one that just that falls short like we can look at Salah 
Salah's been the best player in the league in two different seasons. He was the unanimous footballer of the year in 17-18 and 21-22. Which is just outstrips what Hazard did. He's a three-time Golden Boot winner. He won the Playmaker of the Season award, which Hazard never did. Salah has 269 goals in his career in 566 games. That's more goals in less games than Eden Hazard. More goals in less games. His assist-to-game ratio is also better than Eden Hazard. So there's that aspect of it as well. People will say, oh, well, all, all Salah has is goals. No, he's actually a more creative player as well. Mohamed Salah led the Premier League in assists. That's something Eden Hazard simply has not done. Eden Hazard played 623 career games. So he's nearly 60 more, 57 more than Salah. And Salah has maintained this incredible level through his prime. Hazard basically retired at 28 years of age. Salah has performed on the international level. Now, admittedly, the AFCON is a lower level than the European Championships, but Egypt have far less talent around him than Hazard had with Belgium. In fact, Egypt have been largely dross around Salah, and Salah's gotten them to the final twice. He's brought Liverpool to three Champions League finals. He's won one. Won one league title, which is obviously won less than Hazard, but did win that Champions League, which is more impressive. Uh, one FA Cup, one, one league cup. And Liverpool don't take the cup seriously a lot of years, so that's not on Salah. He may well win the Europa League this year. And people will say, oh, well, all he's done, he only did it at Liverpool. No, that's not true. He was great at Roma. He had two great years at Roma. He was outstanding with Basel. That's why Chelsea bought him. The argument against Salah is that he didn't do well at Chelsea. We didn't get any opportunities. It's very hard to do much when you don't get opportunities. He went to Fiorentina and immediately showed what he was capable of. By the way, he also won a league title with Chelsea. So... While he didn't contribute, he did win a league title with Chelsea in 14-15. He played three games. And he played in the League Cup that year, which means he won the League Cup with Chelsea that year too. He just doesn't care about those medals because he didn't contribute. In the same way, Eden Hazard didn't contribute to anything that took place at Real Madrid for the last four years. But you look at his Premier League record. 142 goals in 226 games for Liverpool and compare that to Eden Hazard's Premier League record at Chelsea where he played 245 games, so 19 games more, scored 85 goals, so almost 60 goals less. 
in the Cups, the league, the, the FA Cup, for example, they've both scored five goals. The difference is Salah's only played 11 games in the competition. Hazard played 23. In the League Cup, Mo Salah's only played four games in that competition in his Liverpool career. Hazard played 25. Chelsea took the cup a lot more seriously. In Europe for Chelsea, Hazard scored 11 goals in 53 games. That's both competitions. Whereas Mohamed Salah, in 68 European games, has 43 goals. 192 goals in 315 games. This is his seventh season at Liverpool. Eden Hazard was seven years at Chelsea. He played 352 games. Do we think Salah's likely to play another 37 games this season? I think so. So by the end of the season, they should have a similar tally of games played. Hazard scored 110 goals. And Salah's closing in on 200. And if he plays another 37 games, he'll get to 210, 212, somewhere around there. There's no comparison of these two gentlemen. Hazard is more naturally talented than Salah. But Salah is a better finisher, a better goal scorer, a better passer, a better presser, He works harder for the team. Hazard's a better dribbler, and that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Eden Hazard is a better dribbler. He retires as a what might have been, in the same way Neymar will have, in the same way Paul Pogba, the third of that generation of should-have-been-greats, should-have-been-all-time-greats, they'll all retire having underachieved. And Mo Salah will will retire having overachieved. And that's what will make him an all-time great and not the others, especially Eden Hazard. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll do questions. Uh, We have a couple, I believe, and then we will do the gossip and be done. So I will see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So question time. We have first question from Mr. Guy Drinkle. Uh, I have a question for today's pod. You've mentioned Liverpool getting a defensive right back, a Kunde Timber Gomez type. Are there any centre-backs you reckon could be converted into that role? Unsurprisingly, I do have a short list. Um, it is a short list. I've only got five, really, and one I'm not sure he's of the calibre to become a player for an elite-level Premier League team, but I certainly think he could play in the Premier League for a good team, and that's Ronnie Edwards of Peterborough. I've mentioned him before. Um I think he could become like an Ivanovic type in that role. Uh, and I do quite like the idea of him there. He's a good ball player as well. Uh, Leonidas Steerjew is the next one. He's currently at Stuttgart on loan from St. Gallen. Now, it's limited, limited amounts I've seen of him. But to me, he looks like he's got the attributes 
to play that role in a Ben White type of way as a as a solid ball player who can make overlapping runs, won't do anything overly spectacular, but is a better defensive prospect, I think, than Ben White. Jonas Billers of Club Bruges will be next. I, I'm very enthused by what I've seen of this kid. Again, it's it's limited amounts, but I am enthused by what I've seen of him. And I think he's definitely one to keep an eye on. I think he's the next big money defender to come out of Belgium. So keep an eye for him. A fellow who was at Bruges and has left now and joined Bayer Leverkusen, Noah Mbamba, can play holding midfield or central defence. I think he could play right back and be absolutely dominant. I think he's got the pace and mobility needed. He's already a promising 1v1 defender and he's comfortable on the ball. Now, he'd need to develop that on-ball side, but I think he's one. And then Mohamed Simikin of Leipzig. And I think he could excel in that defensive right-back role. I think he's got enormous potential to play that position. And he would probably be my top pick if I was looking for one for Liverpool to bring in this summer. It would probably be him. Jules Koundé is the model. And I think Timber fits really well. And if Gomez hadn't had the injuries and I could trust him a bit more, I'd be more than happy with him there. But I think Simikin is the next one that you could use there. So there we go. Um, Moving on. Next question, I think, comes from Theo. Actually, I'm incorrect. It comes from Alex. So, how does the ceiling of each team's season change if the following transfers are made in January, assuming no other transfers are made by the club? So, uh, he's got 5, 10. He's got 20. So, he's got one for every team. Um... Let's get into this. So, Nicolo Barella to Arsenal. I don't like it because I think if Arsenal are going to add another one in midfield, it needs to be a holding midfielder to replace Thomas Partey for obvious reasons. Uh, Declan Rice is so much better as a box-to-box midfielder. It's actually hilarious. And they look a more balanced team with Rice as the holding midfielder. Now, is Barella a better eight than Kai Havertz? Absolutely. So in that regard, if we're comparing it against the Rice six Havertz left-sided eight, it would it would improve them significantly, but I still think they'd fall short of winning the title. Uh, Pedro Concalves to Spurs. I don't think it changes things. I, I don't think he gets in their starting eleven. And I really like him as a player, but Kulisewski right wing, he's not getting in over him. He's definitely not getting in over Madison. He could play off the left. I just don't think you'd get the best out of him in that role. So I don't actually think it helps. Um, it helps Tottenham. Alfonso Davies to Liverpool. I think it definitely puts them a strong second. I still think the holding midfield issue stops them winning the title. 
But Alfonso Davies does massively improve Liverpool coming in over Andy Robertson. Edmund tops up it to Newcastle, I think would potentially jump them into top four. Right now, I think they finish fifth. I think that would jump them into the top four. I think he would be a big improvement. He's very, very good. Dusan Vlahovic to Chelsea would make them a real top four contender because they need that focal point nine. Uh, Nazar Mazraoui to Manchester United. He's definitely an improvement on their right-back situation. I I don't know that he lifts them out of the Europa League, though I don't think he's the difference between Europa, potentially Conference League, and Champions League. But I'd say he would nearly secure them as a Europa League team. Nearly. Uh, Nico Williams to City. I mean, I really like Nico Williams. I don't know that I like the idea of Nico Williams and Jeremy Doku as your two winger options, though. I think there's a little bit of inconsistency there, especially when you've got a player in Haaland who does tend to just be a non-event in, in quite a few games. But I do like him as a player. But their ceiling's already winning the league and winning the Champions League, so can you really improve on that? Uh, Santiago Jimenez to West Ham. That's an interesting one. I think he could make them a Europa League team. Lateral Gertruda to Crystal Palace. I think that puts them as a top half team. I think that would would lift them into the top half. He would be an enormous, enormous improvement at right back. And he can play in midfield. And he can cover at centre back. Yeah, I think he would make them a top half team. And potentially see them have a decent run in the FA Cup. Uh, Yusuf Ed Naziri to Fulham. I think I had them finishing 17th. I do think as, you know, that was pre-Polinia. Uh, with Polinia staying, if they could add him, I think that bumps them up towards the mid-table, like 12th. Maybe even pushing for 10th again. Kevin Danzo to Forrest. That's a good, that's a good fit. That's a good fit. On the right of a back three, I think he'd be very, very good. To play in a two as well with Murillo. I mean, it definitely secures them another spot in the uh, in this in the this league for next year. Definitely does. That that would absolutely secure survival. Um, I think top half would still be out of the question, though. Vanchelez Pavlidis to Brentford. That's a good shout. He fits. Now, what's his contract situation? I could spell a little help. He's only 24. He definitely fits. He's had a contract in 2025. So he's basically got 18 months left. He's on he's on fire this season. 11 goals and 3 assists already. I think he could make them a top half team. Now, look, is he as good as Tony? No. But he'd be there for the next few years. He didn't have a Great league campaign last year was great in Europe. 25, 25 goals in 51 games in 21-22, 22-40 last year. 
Um, 11 and 14 in all competitions this year. He's he's just been tremendous since he went there. It was that Willem Tway beforehand. I love that shout. Very, very much in favour of that. Uh, yeah, that that because because Tony's out. So if we're factoring in the non-Ivan Tony Brentford, because with Ivan Tony, I think they they probably get top half. Uh, so I think it puts them back in the top half. Um, Mikhail Yarzabel to Wolves. I love that one. Play him on the right and play Neto on the left with Cunha through the middle, or play him and Cunha up front with Neto off the left and someone else on the right. Um, he's not, like, he scores a decent amount of goals. He's not he's not that poacher type, but you could use him in that way a lot because Cunha can drop deep. He could play off the shoulder. I do think there's probably 15 to 18 league goals in him if used the right way or used in a certain way, not necessarily the right way because he can play a bunch of ways and it's the right way. Uh, probably just, you know, comfortable mid-table. Um, Elgif Elmas to Everton. Him and Onana in midfield would be good. Yeah, that, that might that might make them a survival team. I have them going down. I think that helps them survive. David Hanko to Burnley. Is he the right lead centre-back for them to bring in? He is good. I have them just about staying up. I think that kind of keeps them in the same ballpark. It's not The partner with him would have to be right as well, and they've got a, a bit of an, an odd mix of centre-backs. Uh, Salas Abdul Samed to Bournemouth. He's a decent ball winner, and having lost Tyler Adams, that is that is what they need. I think it keeps them up. I have them staying up, but without without Adams, I'm not, not overly confident in the pick. Trevor Chalaba to Sheffield United. I, I still think they'd go down, but I do. I do think he is tremendous. And actually, in answer to Guy's question of centre backs to play right back, Trevor Chalaba, it actually put him right at the top of the list with Simicon. I think Trevor Chalaba has become incredibly underrated, and I genuinely don't know what's gone on at Chelsea where he is so far on the outs. My preferred position for him is actually as a holding midfielder. I think that's the best use of him. But he'd be excellent in that right-back role. Uh, so I think I don't think it actually helps Sheffield United. Well, he'd make them much better defensively. The question is, can they score enough goals? And I don't think they can. He'd, he'd help them concede less. So maybe they could scrape their way to enough points but I still think they go down Lionel Messi to Luton to know what <laughs> um, I didn't even see that that's brilliant um, Lionel Messi to Luton I'll come back to that one Sasha Bowie to Brighton I, I think that definitely makes them a, a nailed on uh, Europa League team I think I have them in the I think I had them finishing outside of Europe this season when I did my predictions um, he is a big upgrade at right back. He is a big time upgrade at right back. So yeah, I think he would make them a 
a Europa League, Europa Conference League team again. Alexander Ba to Villa. Quite like him. But I like Matty Cash as well. He's an upgrade on Cash, but I wouldn't class Cash as a poor player. I think it would keep them in that Europa Conference League, Europa League type of mix. I don't think it makes a huge needle-moving difference. Messi to Luton. I think Luton are going down. I think they're going down in as one of the bottom two, with Sheffield United being the other one in that bottom two. Um, I think Messi keeps them up. I do. I think because he's Messi. I think he keeps them up. Now the only issue here is they'd have to completely adopt adapt a totally different style of play because they're a long ball team. So you'd need to you'd need to hire a different manager as well. And probably sign at least one other forward, someone with speed and movement, as opposed to the two kind of big traditional back to goal number nines. That would be fun, though. That would be fun. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that. Right, let's move on. Uh, LFC Station. Last week, I watched both Colin Kazim Richards on the Filthy Fellas podcast and Kevin Prince Boatang on Rio Ferdinand's YouTube and found them both to be so interesting in listening to in particular. Uh, in particular, Colin, Colin Kazim Richards. Got me thinking, which journeyman players would you be keen on listening to and why? Um, a player I would love to hear the full story, both on and off the pitch, is Hatim Banarfa. That's a great shout. If you could get him... To be open and honest about his career, I think that would be fascinating. I I did hear some of the the Colin Kazim Richards one. I, I think he's had an amazing career. Like it's just so he was playing for Bury. Grew up in the east in in East London. Went to Bury at fifteen made his breakthrough there. In 2005, West uh, West Ham, I don't know why I want to say West Ham, Brighton won a competition sponsored by Coca-Cola where a fan could win £250,000 for his club to buy a player. And Brighton spent their £250,000 to sign Colin Kazim Richards. He only stayed a year. He fell out with Mark McGee and he left and went to Sheffield Sheffield United for one hundred and fifty grand. Spent one year there as well. At some point along the way, he got picked up by the Turkish national team. Um, I think he was at Sheffield United at this point. And then Fenerbahce signed him. And he... With respect, he wasn't good enough to play for Fenerbahce. But he spent four years there, uh, including a, a season on loan with Toulouse. Then he went to Galatasaray, and he, he wasn't good enough to be there either. He had a loan at Olympiacos. That was a bit above his level. Uh, he spent some time at Blackburn, then Bursaspor. Then he went to Feyenoord, and he did really well on loan, but then didn't do as well on a permanent deal. Uh, struggled at Celtic, went to Brazil, played for uh, Curitiba and then Corinthians. Then he moved on to Mexico and he played for Lobos on loan. 
Uh, then he went to Vera Cruz in Mexico, Pachuca in Mexico. Then he went to Derby, and he was quite good for them. And now he's just finished up a season playing back in Turkey. Is he retired now? No, he is still technically an active player, but I do think he is Sands club. Um, a hard-working second striker. An interesting story, a very fascinating career. He's been all over the place. Uh, for a kid that, you know, didn't make it at Arsenal, got picked up by Bury and then was part of a Coca-Cola competition uh, to go to Brighton, to, to go on and play for Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Olympiacos, Feyenoord, Celtic, Corinthians. That is genuinely amazing. 37 caps for the Turkish national team as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that type of story would, would definitely fascinate me. Um, even down to the mess up with his surname, because he's Colin Kazim Richards, but his name is not, his surname is not Kazim Richards. It's Richards. His middle name, I think, is meant to be Kazim. There's just some mess up on his birth cert or something. I had this, he's probably told the story on in other places, but yeah. So there we go. Um, an anglicized form of the Turkish name Kazim was intended to be a middle name, which would have rendered his name Colin space Kazim space Richards. But due to an error, he was legally registered with the surname Kazim Richards, which neither his parents have. Um, his mother's Turkish, his father's English. But yeah, so he's got this unusual surname and he's just stuck with it. He could have gone and got a change. We decided not to. Uh, what are the journeyman then? Um, does Raul Morales count? I'd, I'd be very interested to hear his, his story. Um, I mean, Peter Crouch is, is fascinating. He's a journeyman. Nico Cranchar, I'd like to hear his. I'd like to hear what it was like to be stalked by Harry Redknapp for a decade. I think that would be quite interesting. I mean, a lot of the players I'd like to hear from are sort of mid to th- late 90s, mid 2000s players. Like, even someone like Georgie Kinkladze, I'd love to hear his story. There's actually a lot. I think I think Ben Arfa is, is the number one shout though, because he might be like he could have been one of the five best players in the world, and he, he just continued to get himself in bother. Um, Fact: nineteen seventy seven with Oli Giroud's brief but majestic stint as a goalkeeper this weekend, preserving three points for AC Milan. It got me thinking about position players and keepers. Can you provide a top five? Current Premier League players who you think could shine as a goalkeeper in a pinch. Conversely, who would be comically inept in goal? Um, He's short, but I think Andy Robertson would make a fair old fist of it just through sheer force of will. Um, Who'd do well? I think Kuti Romero would do pretty well because he's got good agility and he's got explosiveness. So I think him. 
I think Declan Rice, because he, he just he'd be so fearless, like he'd be very Ramsdale-esque. But I think Declan Rice could make a decent fist of it. Danny Welbeck could give it a go. I think he'd do pretty well. He'd be brave as well. Who'd be dreadful? Lissandra Lissandra Martinez would be hilariously bad because he's five foot four. Um, Maguire would be hilariously bad. Imagine, Imagine that lack of agility in goal. I'm just going to give you those two, Maguire and Martinez. Uh, AMK2889, Gary Neville's brother Phil had to leave United to get playing time he wanted. Had Gary been in his brother's shoes, would Gary have done the same or was he so devoted to United he would have accepted a part-time role off the bench? Uh, was there any chance he would have pushed for a move to Liverpool or Arsenal out of spite? Definitely not Liverpool. Definitely not Liverpool, because Gary Neville hates Scousers. So and Scousers hated him. So definitely not Liverpool. He doesn't hate them anymore. He hated them when he was playing. Um could he have gone to Arsenal? Maybe. Maybe. I definitely think he would have gone to Chelsea. Because he has that bit of Chelsea about him. But I don't think he would have pushed to leave. I don't. Because I think the difference between Gary and Phil is that Gary would have had the self-belief to think, I'll get back in this team. Because by the time, like, Phil came through at United at this, like, a year, obviously, after Gary. And Gary established himself at right back because Paul Parker was moved on. And the plan for Phil was, well, he'll replace Dennis Irwin in a couple of years. And then, for whatever reason, Phil Neville just didn't develop past a certain point. Now, he said he was told in an England youth or an England camp early in his career, you need to specialize in one position rather than being this utility player. And he thought, that's a load of rubbish. I'm playing regularly for United. I'm in the squad every week. And I can play both fullback spots and in midfield. I think it hurt him in his career, if I'm honest. I think if Bill Neville had made a conscious decision in about 97 that I'm going to focus on left back. And that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be United's left back. I think he could have nailed the spot down better than he did already. Now... He got his opportunities. When Irwin retired, Neville did become the primary left-back. But he hadn't specialised in that position, so he did struggle. Like, he wasn't consistently good enough, which is what eventually prompted Ferguson to go and bring in Patrice Everett. Now, Ferguson, I think, hoped all along, while looking for that left-back solution, I think Ferguson was really hoping... Because he was looking for a left-back for a couple of years. Um, there were stories that he tried to bring in Ashley Cole and a, and a couple of others. He didn't get... Neville was gone before he signed Everett. Uh, but I think his long-term plan was Gary at right-back, a new left-back, and Phil is the third full-back that can play both sides. 
and he'll give me six and a half, seven out of ten. But like players like John O'Shea and Mikhail Sylvester were getting minutes over over Phil Neville at United. And he left in 2005. I think he made a mistake, to be honest. I think he made a mistake. I know he got to play a ton for Everton, but like, let's look at the numbers here. He spent eight seasons with Everton. He played 303 games. For United, he was a first-team player for 10 years. He played 386 times. So, yeah, he played more in the league, but he lost out in a bunch of opportunities at United at Everton because he wasn't getting regular European football. They're only in Europe four seasons out of his eight years there. He's not getting too many extended cup runs the way he did at United. They had a couple, but not, not nearly as many as he would have at United. I think he wanted to be a bit of a bigger fish in the pond, to be honest. I think that was actually the primary reason he left. I, but I think Gary would have stayed. Um, Matt JT, watched a comp of Luis Suarez and had kind of forgotten how good he is. Do you think his years at Liverpool are underrated? At the prime, who do you think was better, Salah, Salah or Suarez? Uh, Salah is incredible, but Suarez at his best is better than Salah, was better than Salah is or, or has been. Uh, do you think his years at Liverpool are underrated? Absolutely, because he played surrounded by a lot of dross. But for 18 months at Liverpool, he was the best player in the world. From January 2013 to May of 2014, and I know it's not actually 18 months on the calendar, it's like 17, I don't care. He was the best player in the world. He was. He was better than Messi in that time. And he had a year at Barcelona where he was also better than Messi. And he had probably four four straight years of being better than Cristiano Ronaldo. And he was robbed of a Ballon d'Or on at least one occasion, actually on two occasions really, but on one occasion for certain. Um, he was robbed of a PFA Player of the Year and a Football Writers Player of the Year um, because of his behaviour. And, you know, that's that's just what it is. But uh, Luis Suarez has, yeah, definitely become underrated because Liverpool have gone on to have such great success as well. Um, now, great successes maybe stretching it one league title one European Cup but you know they've had tremendous success and I, I think that's caused people to maybe underrate Suarez and what he did nearly coming sack or coming sack and nearly winning the league but like let's be fair if if you had Salah Suarez and Mane Liverpool would have three league titles and two or three Champions Leagues like as good as Bobby Firmino was Luis Suarez was several, several levels above. Um, and he was better than than either Mane or Salah. So he would have been the best player in in the team. Isaac Gilding. Can you make two all-time 11s? One of players who played the game calmly have hardly ever phased. The other of absolute maniacs. I can. Give me one sec. What, if anything, do Liverpool also win if you replace Henderson with the current Dominic Sabozlai in seventeen eighteen? So they win the league in eighteen nineteen. I think they win the Champions League in nineteen twenty, and I think they win the league and Champions League in twenty one twenty two. 
In fact, I'm certain they win the league in Champions League in 21-22. I'm certain they win the league in 18-19. The 19-20 Champions League, I think I think they win it. I do. That's the toughest one, but I'm certain of the others. So at least two league titles and one Champions League more. Maybe one other Champions League. Uh, in terms of, right, players, right, we're talking about calmness, or a composure. So, goalkeeper's got to be Alison Becker or Gigi Buffon. Can be either. Um, We'll go with Gigi. We'll go with Gigi. Left back is Maldini. Centre backs are Van Dijk and Nesta. And right back is Lillian Turam. Composure, calmness, Natural ability all over the place. Uh, midfield, we're going Frank Reichardt. Oh, Redondo. Do you know what? We'll go Redondo. We'll go Redondo and Lothar Mateus in the central midfield roles. We'll go Zidane as a 10. Van Basten as a nine. We'll play Kaka from the left as like an attacking midfield left winger type because he had the pace to do it and the skill. And on the right wing, we'll go Lionel Messi. Now, those might be players that are a little bit too good for this because like, I always think of Daniel Sturridge. Just was just such a an ease to how he played, but We'll go Van Basten up front. In terms of the chaos, Suarez is the nine. Chilever is the goalkeeper. I'm going to put Gabriel of Arsenal and Kuti Romero as the centre-backs. Because I'm trying to make this good. I don't want to be shit. And um, Sergio Ramos... Actually, hang on. Hang on. We'll go Sergio Ramos right back, Kuti Romero and Rudiger at centre-back. And at left-back, I'm going to go with Jordi Alba because he always seemed in a panic to me. Um... He could go Albi Moreno either. Actually, you know what? For for the sake of Guy Drinkle, we'll go Albi Moreno. Um, midfield. I mean, Declan Rice, he's basically he's got his hair on fire a lot of the time. So we'll go with him and we'll go Javier Mascherano, who just played at a million miles an hour. Um, frenetic wingers. Frenetic wingers who perhaps struggle with consistency, I suppose is what we're looking for here. Um, hmm. Picking good ones is tough. There's loads of bad ones. We'll go Adama Traore on one wing anyway, and we'll go Alan St. Maximum on the other. So they're, they're the wingers. And then up front... Darwin Nunes and Suarez. 
yeah, I'm happy enough. I'm happy enough. Right. On to the gossip. Is there any news we need to touch on? Uh, Wembley used to have a minute's silence for the victims in Israel and Gaza. I'm glad they've added Gaza. Uh, I, I'd very much like to see a little bit more support for the Palestinian people and a little bit less support for the apartheid state. Um, there's an inside season, sorry, an inside story of Everton's season. Is that written by Phil McNulty? It's not. It's written by Shamoon Hafez and Julia Bould, who I don't know either of them, but definitely going to give that a read. Um, Bet Mead is back in training, which is good. Christophe Galtier has replaced Hernan Crespo as the Al Dahul boss. It appears there's an Everton documentary called Nothing Will Be the Same Again. Oh, it's, an, it's a podcast. Is this where the articles come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what that is. Uh, okay. Might give that a listen. Might give that a listen. We're picking a Scottish team to play Spain. Or are we? Oh, no. A team has already been picked by the listeners. Uh, Angus Gunn, Hickey, Hendry, Porteous, Robertson, Gilmore, McTominay, McGregor. That midfield is grim. Uh, McGinn, Dykes, and Adams. This is not great, is it? No. Um, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Best of luck to Scotland taking on Spain in their next game. Uh, Messi will not go on loan, says Guillaume Balligan. Didn't think he would, but it was an interesting little thought to have. Right, gossip. Barcelona are weighing up a move for Jorginho of Arsenal. Um, I mean, I can see why, but also no. Uh, Harry Maguire has threatened to leave Manchester United if he continues to struggle for first-team football. What kind of threat is that? They want you to leave. They begged you to leave in the summer. Real Madrid have extended the contracts of Eduardo Camavinga and Federico Valverde until 2028, with both deals including £1 billion buyouts. Jesse Lingard has boosted his chances of a move to Al Etifak by scoring for Steven Gerrard's side in a friendly. Um, it's amazing that he's having to earn this, considering the tribe that they've signed already. Uh, Chelsea have added Victor Osman to the list of January transfer targets. Xabi Alonso has a clause in his contract which will allow him to become the manager of any of his former clubs, Liverpool, Real Madrid or Bayern Munich, as early as next summer. What about Real Sociedad? There's no clause for them. Uh, West Ham, Brighton and Crystal Palace, along with Bournemouth, are interested in Stuttgart and Guinea Ford, Serhu Guresa, uh, who's the leading scorer in the Bundesliga this season. Stuttgart have had an unbelievably good start, considering you know, how the last few years have gone for them. Don't expect it to continue, though. Manchester United are set to extend the contracts of Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Victor Lindelof, but will take their time before deciding on Anthony Martial's future. What do you need to decide? He's been awful. As of the other two. Well, no, Lindelof hasn't been awful. Wan-Bissaka has, though. Former Tottenham boss Antonio Conte has rejected the chance to become Napoli's next manager 
with the Italian preferring to wait for other opportunities elsewhere. Interesting. So obviously Napoli not had the particularly good start to the season. Uh, Rudy Garcia has been pretty disastrous. They do need a change. I just I Conte and De Laurentiis I think would kill. Well, I think Conte would murder him to be honest. Uh, Napoli have also got Julian Lopetegui on their list. I no, I don't like that for them either. Um, he's a he's a better manager than Garcia, but he's not what they need. Uh, he didn't even attack minded coach. Like you've got Osman, you've got Kliche, you've got Raspadori. You need an attacking coach to get the best out of those players. Uh, Jose Mourinho is interested in signing Eric Dyer for Roma. Makes sense. He tried to sign him for United and was delighted to have him when he went to Spurs. Juventus are keen on Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. That's going since the summer. Inter have their sights set on Thomas Suchek. I doubt it. Yuri Thielemans already wants to leave Aston Villa after falling out with Unai Emery. Now, the source is... Football Insider, and it's Wayne Vesey who's the biggest spoofer among all the spoofers at Football Insider. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he stays one year and then goes. Barcelona are monitoring Porto's 22 year old Argentine Alan Varela, Royal Antwerp's eight, uh, 19 or 18 year old Arthur Vermeeren, uh, along with Bayer Leverkusen's Florian Verts. That's just a bunch of names thrown together. Uh, there's no actual logic to those three being on a list. Arsenal are on, also interested in Vermeer and he doesn't see how they play. Um, he does, but they've got players that do what he does best, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You could you could develop him as, an, as a six. You could develop him as a really good six, but Arsenal are sort of a win-now team because they've spent all this money. And they're paying their players incredible wages. So they've, they've got to buy players for now. And that's it. That's all we've got, folks. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Tomorrow is Nostalgia Day. So there you go. See you next time. That sounded weird. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>